0: Good morning. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us in worship today, whether you're here in the sanctuary or those of you in the chapel and online. Thank you so much for joining us in worshiping God together and hearing from his word. This week, I'm continuing to talk about some burning questions that have been going through my mind. And one is in this time of confusion, it's God sometimes feels distant. And so now what? What do we do now? And it is sometimes a confusing environment. It's a very hyper hypercharged world outside and sometimes even inside the church. Every issue seems to be a matter of life and death no matter how trivial it is. You're with us, you're against us, you're on this side or another, but the problem is many questions don't have clear answers and where there's a demand for you have to believe this or this. Sometimes there's two competing things that we're trying to balance in our minds, such as the the tough line between protecting people keeping people safe but also gathering together with people and encourage them there's not a clear answer of this doing this is always right doing this is always wrong and then this confusion this unclear answers can make God feel distant we may struggle to connect with him I'm not sure what to do in this situation I'm reading through the Bible and I just don't know how to respond to this problem I'm facing and so God feels distant so what should we do Well, today we're going to look at the words of King David and some thoughts he had about how we can know God, even when times are confusing or hard. And King David was an imperfect man, to say the least. He had many huge faults, but he had an immense understanding of God and a great love for the Lord. And in Psalm 19, he speaks of how God is revealed in creation and what we see around us how he's revealed through his word, the Bible, and the response that's called for when we see who God is. What we'll find is that we can learn about God by looking in his word and by looking around the world that he created. They're like two books of the same revelation. They're two parts of the same poem. And as we look around and we look in God's word, we find out that God is not as distant as he may feel. So let's pray and then we'll look at what king david has to say to us this morning lord thank you for your word and although we're listening to david's words there really are your words god god sometimes things are confusing sometimes we don't know exactly what to do sometimes you feel distant you feel it seems like you're unconcerned with the issues we're going through so god help us to figure out where we can see you help us to look around and see what you've done in creation in the world Help us to look in your word to see what you say about who you are and about what you do. And God, help us to look in our hearts so that we may be committed to you and may know you better. Lord, my prayer for this time is that you would increase, you would receive praise and glory. May our focus be on you. As we see you more, God, you become less distant and we rely more on you. Thank you that you've given us your word. Thank you that you've given us this world that we can live in and praise you. Thank you for your immense goodness you show to us, especially through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray, amen. So we're talking about that God feels distant, but we're really talking about how do we know God. And the first way we can know God is by looking around, looking around. What I mean is look around at the world, at creation, at what God has made. If you're not there, you can turn to Psalm 19 in your Bible, Psalm 19. And we're going to start by reading verses one through six. I'm going to be reading from the English standard version. So Psalm 19, these Psalms were songs of praise for God's people. And so it begins to the choir master, a Psalm of David. But here's verse one. David writes this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So in these verses, we start with David saying that the heavens declare, they proclaim, they show, they manifest God's glory, how wonderful and powerful he is. And they continue to do so every moment of every day. He says the sky above does this, the expanse, the firmament, the atmosphere created by God. Some language reminding us of the very beginning of the Bible how God made this world and the atmosphere around it that keeps us alive. It shows, proclaims his handiwork, the work of God's hands. His craftsmanship is seen here, he's saying, when we look up at the sky and at the heavens. By looking at any of creation, we see God's power that he was able to make this. We see his wisdom in how it all fits together, and it adds to his worthiness to be worshipped and praised. We see his faithfulness to us in that this world exists in such a way that we can live and we can know God here. We see evidence of his present work in the world. As we look up at the heavens, our thoughts go up, and we can think there's something more than me here. And when we look up rightly, we cannot deny that God exists. It should be obvious. When we look up, we realize how small we are and how immense everything else is around us. Every part of creation shows us God's glory. But as David realizes, the sky really emphasizes our smallness and how great something else must be. And for David, he rightly sees how great God is when he looks up. I don't know if you've ever been somewhere that's kind of away from a city, but if you've ever been somewhere a little more remote and looked up at the night sky, it's incredible how many stars are there. Now, I grew up here in the Harrisburg area, and there's a story in the Old Testament where God speaks to a man named Abraham, and he says, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. And growing up here near the city, I looked up and I was like, I mean, that's a lot of people, but that's not a whole lot of people. If I really worked at it, I could probably count all of those up there then when I was a teenager, I once went to a, on a camping trip in the northern part of the state, away from the cities and the lights. And when you get somewhere like that, we went out to a clearing one night and realized just how many stars there really are up there. And it made me feel so small to realize there's all of these stars out there that somehow ended up there. And David's thought, and my thought as well, was God made all of that. And that is truly Incredible! I never realized how many there were. But you don't just see it at night, you can also see it during the day. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I went to Christian Retreat Center on the Chesapeake Bay and we were able to watch the sunset. And as the sun was going down, top picture, it was going behind some clouds. But right before it dipped behind the hill, there was a final flash of light. And I thought, wow, that's an incredible picture of beauty right there. And at the exact same moment, both Christine and I thought of this verse, Psalm 19, verse 1, we thought the heavens declare the glory of God. That was the thought we had looking at that beautiful sunset. In verse 2, David says this happens every day. He says day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. He's talking about how looking at the sky, looking at creation shows us more of God. Every day, every night, we can know more about God by simply looking outside and seeing what he has made. In another psalm, we read this. Psalm 74, a praise to God says, yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. All are under his control, governed by his wisdom every day is another page in the greatest story ever told the great story of god's work and david realizes the whole sky every person on earth sees this as verse three says there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard every person can see creation even if they're blind they can experience it but not everyone sees god in it or recognizes that he created it if they're looking at it rightly, they'll say what the psalmist says in Psalm 50, verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. If we look at the skies, we look at creation rightly, we realize there's someone else greater here than I am and someone who I am accountable to. Sometimes Bible scholars, like using bigger words, they call this general revelation. And what they mean is this is how God has revealed himself to every person who has ever lived. He reveals himself through what he has created, through the sky, through the earth, through what he does that everyone experiences. And this general revelation is enough that every single person is without excuse. Every single person should know God. If God never spoke, they should know that he exists. The apostle Paul writes about this in the book of Romans. He says in Romans 1, for what can be known about God is plain to them, Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse. And this is what happens when we do not know God. An unbeliever, not trusting in who he is. We rebel against God. We know that there's something greater out there, but we choose, I'm going to follow my own way and my own desires. Even though I can see there's someone or something that has done all of this, I'm going to live for what I want. But as David realizes, there is a speech, there is a message coming from creation. And every part of creation is really a sermon on who God is. In verse 4, he says, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Creation has a message. It has a standard, a line that all can be measured by. And everyone has heard this message and is accountable for it, though not everyone understands it. And Paul actually makes this point by referencing this psalm in later in Romans. In Romans 10, he says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, Have they not heard? Indeed they have, for, this is verse 4 of our passage, their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the end of the world. He's saying every person has heard of God and his truth. They've heard because they've looked and they've seen or they've experienced his creation. Every language, culture, and people group has heard the message of heaven, even if they've never heard scripture. As one final emphasis of this, he looks particularly at the sun. In the end of verse 4, he says, In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with the joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. It's a description of the strength of the sun. He compares it to a strong man, a champion, an athlete, And he uses some language here, talking about the sun like a person. Uh, He's doing some artistic things here. He's saying the sun appears to circle the earth, talks about its circuit, and the sun appears to live in the sky. And in that day, many people lived in tents, or the tabernacle was where God's presence was, but sometimes people lived in a place they would call that. And so he's saying the sun lives in a tent in that it goes through the sky. It's a way of describing the sun. We shouldn't get too high and mighty in our 21st century minds like well the sun doesn't actually live in the sky that's not correct there okay he, he's making a picture here he's trying to help us appreciate god's power as seen in the sun unless we get too high and mighty we use similar phrases every person uses the word sunrise and sunset we know scientifically that's not what's happening the earth is spinning on its axis the sun isn't actually rising and setting but we still use that because that's the way it appears to us. And that's all David's talking about here. The sun goes on its circuit. It appears to live in the sky. In fact, it's proud, excited to go on its way. He says it's like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like someone whose husband has just been married after his wedding, and he's excited to go with his wife that he loves. And it moves in its splendor and swiftness. And then nothing is hidden from its heat and warmth. The sun is so powerful that on a sunny day during the day, we feel its heat. The sun is over 94 million miles away, and yet we still feel its heat. And this image of the sun's power is also used in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, they say, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. But unlike other religions of David's time, The sun is not praised as a God. Here David is just pointing to the sun to then direct his focus toward the Lord. This sun, this powerful orb that gives us light and heat, it's only a part of creation. How great is our God? Now we may ask a question though. Some of us, we're in a church, we may think, well yeah, this all makes sense. I look up and I say, yeah, that, that looks like God. But not everyone believes this. And if this creation, of this general revelation of God is so obvious, then why doesn't everyone believe? What happened? Why can't they look at that and see what I see? And the problem is that we are slaves. We're trapped in our sin. We see it, but we don't recognize it. In the passage where Paul talked about everyone is without excuse, just two verses later, he says this, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Yes, we look and see it, but instead of looking at that and saying, wow, how great God is, we focus on one thing or another we see up there, we see in the world, or that we want in our heart. And it's easy to say, well, here in America, very few of us worship actual idols, so we're better than these people that Paul and David are talking about. But Just because we're not worshiping the sun or building an image to someone, we make gods of things in our lives, like our desires, whether it's for money, for power, for sex, or whatever we're looking for. Instead, Christians in particular should look around, and when they look around, it should lead their thoughts to praise the Lord. And this should be the the way everybody thinks, but especially those who know God. Some like to look at what's going, the world around them and look at God's word. They look for differences and contradictions between nature and the Bible and say, well, this is off here. How can we think about this? But I think a more proper response is awe and worship. We look and we say, wow, my wife and I saw that sunset. We weren't thinking about the specifics of how the earth turns or whether David's right to describe it as a bridegroom. We were just thinking, wow, that is incredible. Pastor Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, he is wisest who reads both the world book, who looks around, and the word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them, my father wrote them both. So look and say, God made that and he wrote his truth in here. So if we want to know God, if God feels distant, I encourage you to look around, look outside at the world that God has made and really look and see what he has done, his workmanship and handiwork. Now, I'm not telling you to do anything unsafe, take necessary precautions, follow recommendations, but look and see what God has made. Be safe, but appreciate God's work. I've tried to take some time to do that this summer. A uh, picture earlier was a hike that I did with my father and brother at a boulder field in northern PA hiked recently at some state parks like Caledonia. The picture on the left is one I took at Ricketts Glen where there's a bunch of waterfalls, and you can hike and look and see how beautiful it is. Or recently hiking on Peter's Mountain nearby. There are ways to see God's glory. But you also don't have to go outside. You're saying, I'm really uncomfortable going outside or doing it. Okay, there are other ways you can see what God has made out there. We live in a day and age where you can see other things that God has made in the world by just going on your computer. And sometimes I like to learn about God's glory and creation in other places too, maybe places I'll never go in my life. I read an article recently about a lake in the mountains of japan that when the snow melts it makes it look like an eyeball that shows up there and so crowds of people come up every spring to see this they call it the dragon eye lake in japan and i thought that was really cool that's all oh, that's awesome this lake that melts into a pupil shape don't have a picture of this, but I also read about in the deserts of Namibia, there are these plants that grow in circles all over the desert, and they can't explain why they do that. That's incredible, this desert and all these circle shapes all over it. Or even closer to home, I was reading recently about some history of things that happened in the plains of this country, and it was talking about South Dakota and what a difference there is between the the remote badlands, and then just nearby, less an hour away, the very lush and fertile black hills in South Dakota. These are places, maybe I'll never go to any of these places, but I can look and see, wow, that's incredible that God has made this. Look around, see what God has made, and know him. But yes, not everyone sees God in nature, and looking at nature doesn't tell us specifically who God is. So thankfully, we can also look in the word. We can look around, but we can also look in His Word. Listen to verses 7 through 11 in our passage. Verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now, you notice in some of the early parts, there was a bunch of phrases and expressions, the law of the Lord, testimony, precepts, commandment, rules. These are all different ways of referring to the same thing, referring to the law of God, the Mosaic covenant, the agreement between God and his people that makes up the first five books of the Old Testament. That's really what David's thinking about here. But the same is true for all of the Bible and all of God's word. God's law and instructions are perfect, as verse 7 says. They're perfect as a whole and perfect in all their individual parts. That makes it wrong to add to them, but also wrong to take away from them. We shouldn't add to God's word, add extra books like our Catholic friends or Mormon friends. We shouldn't do that, but we can do that as well. We can add extra rules to God's word. Yes, God says this, but I'm going to do this and this beyond what god has said and everybody else should do that so we shouldn't add to his perfect word but we also shouldn't take away and ignore what god has said and the commands that he has given everything we need to know about god and living for him is here now notice i did not say every answer everything we wanted to know i said everything we need to know about god is here And sometimes that's frustrating because we think, I I want an answer to this question, God. This is the question I want you to tell me. We want to know more, but God's word is perfect. It is what we need to know. And that's the difference between it and the creation that we see when we look around. This is perfect, clear words. It tells us specifically what God is like. Only God's word tells us exactly who God is. His Holy Spirit uses his word to pierce our spiritual blindness. We can look and see there must be a God around us, but it's only by reading or hearing his word that we can come to know him. That is why it is perfect. The New Testament says the same thing about God's law. In Romans 7, 12, we read, So the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Back in our text in verse 7, it says the law of the Lord is perfect. It's reviving the soul. It gives refreshment. It restores. It gives vigor and strength. It even has the power to convert, to draw us away from our sin into a relationship with God. It turns us from following our own desires. It convinces us that we need, we need to depend on the Lord. The very famous Psalm 23, which calls the Lord our shepherd, says this in verse 3, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Then verse 7 says that the testimony, the statutes, the decrees of God's word is sure and trustworthy. It will not lead us astray. In Psalm 78, it says that he, the Lord, established a testimony. Like he's in a courtroom, he's given a testimony to Jacob. He's appointed a law for the people of Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. We have something we can tell others about because we have God's word. And that's a comfort to us in this time and throughout all eternity. No attack against God's word will stand. Now, if someone is saying the Bible's not true for this and this, we we should defend it. We should try to explain what's here. But God's word will defend itself. It doesn't need us to defend it. It needs us to proclaim it. This word can be depended on when we're in need. And when we need knowledge and wisdom to grow, as our text says, it makes wise the simple. If we're simple in understanding, we're not sure what to do. God's word helps us. It points us in the direction to go. The longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And again, this is a theme that we see even in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote to his protege Timothy, and he said this, How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And they're able to do this because all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That any person, the man or woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's word not only saves, it teaches us how we can live for him. As verse 8 says, God's precepts or his commandments are right. Psalm 111 says the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are founded in righteousness. We will only be right when we live by them. God's commands then are pure, clear, radiant, and unmixed with evil. As Psalm 126 says, the words of the Lord are pure words. I love this image like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified, seven times the mental image a movie of someone forging a sword or a piece of metal for a battle god's word is purer than the purest metal it enlightens the eyes it gives us life and energy it makes our heart rejoice psalm 36 9 for with you is the fountain of life in your light do we see light the only 100% true answers you will find in the world can be found here. So do you want to see God? Then look in here. As verse 9 says, it shows us the fear of the Lord, a reverence of Him which is clean and pure. And there's a strong implication there that if if only the fear of the Lord is pure, then every other fear, everything else that worries us, is not pure. It's not clean. It's not something... To be concerned about. Whether that's the fear of man, what someone else thinks about us or says about us, whether it's the fear of death, I don't want to get sick and die, that fear should not take the place of the fear of God. Or the fear of the unknown, I don't know what's going to happen or what to do in this new situation. These fears should not control us, only the clean, pure fear of the Lord. is a challenge to us, what do we think about? And if we want to change our thinking, God's word is where we learn to revere him. It is what endures forever. It's the number one bestseller that has stood the test of time. God's rules, his decrees are firm and true, far better than our humble attempts at doing what is right. This is true. It is a reliable transcript of God's desires. Psalm 119 adds, the sum of your word. If you added up all of God's word, the answer is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And that's what the end of verse 9 says, that God's rules are righteous all together. They are right. They are good in and of themselves. God's rules are righteous and fair to all. I didn't put this quote up there, but the Protestant reformer John Calvin said, in all points, absolutely perfect. And so what that means is if we want to know who God is and how we should live The answers are to be found here. If we sometimes ask the question, what is God's will? It's in here. We can know it by reading his word. Sometimes we overcomplicate it. Okay, well, I've read the Bible, Pastor John. It doesn't tell me specifically what to do in this problem I have going on right now. But we're overcomplicating it. Yes, God's word isn't specific to every single situation, but it helps us to know God. And if we know God, then we know how to live for him. And that's why, as verse 10 says, knowing God's word should bring us delight. It's more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. It is better than riches and the best food, more desirable, more valuable. I've referenced several times Psalm 119 because that whole Psalm. We're studying just 19 because that's only 14 verses. Um, 119 is 176. So I thought that was a bit much for Sunday morning, but it makes some of the same points. In verse 127, Therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. In verse 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. But other places in the Bible we see this. In the book of Proverbs, the king says, My son, eat honey, for it is good. The drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste, and know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find wisdom, there will be a future. Your hope will not be cut off. But he's comparing it to honey, just like the author of this psalm. It is the one it's one thing to recognize Scripture's significance. Thank you, Linda. It's one thing to recognize how significant scripture is, whether we say it's had a great impact on the world or it's it's beautifully written. It's one thing to recognize that, but it's quite another to have the attitude David has here in verse 10, to love God's word, desire it above something else, to view scripture as a love letter from God to us. But if we view that, then we see that God's word also warns us and is our only hope for reward. Verse 11, moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them. There is great reward only by knowing God's word. Can we know how to govern our lives in a way that honors him? This is a verse that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Psalm twenty nine eighteen says, where there is no revelation, where we don't have God's word, people cast off restraint but blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. If you remember, Elder Tom Toon spoke about this passage, focusing on restraint and the importance of restraint in our lives. But we see here that restraint only comes from a revelation of God, from his word. If we keep, if we obey God's word, we will experience reward. Now, let me be clear. That's not a guarantee that you will get wealthy. That's not about money. That's not necessarily you get everything that you want in life talking about spiritual blessings in this life and the next god keeps us and he challenges us to keep and obey his word now one chapter that i referenced a lot referred to was that psalm 119 and we see both in 19 and 119 the psalmists really love god's law here's just four really extreme examples from that psalm that we haven't looked at verse 16 i will delight in your statutes i will not forget your word Verse 20 goes further, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. You know, the first time I read Psalm 19, 119, that huge one, I was shocked about it because this guy really loves God's law. And let's be clear what we're talking about here. This are those list of rules and things from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that if we're reading through the Bible, we're sometimes tempted to skip over. But those 176 verses are praising that law. He loves it. He longs to know it more. And that's a, an attitude that convicts me. Now, we can misuse an understanding of God's law. We, if we make our relationship with God based on how well we keep all the laws, and we're not understanding their purpose. But more often than not, I feel we sometimes downplay God's law. We say, oh, we'll just skip over that, and you get to the New Testament and Jesus stuff. And that's, that's the basis of our faith, of course. But by no reading and knowing God's law, we know who he is. We know what he is like. Our faith is about a relationship, absolutely. It's not about what we do. It's about what Christ has done for us. But if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we have a relationship with anyone, we want to make the other person happy. We want to do things that please them. If we have a friend or or a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend, we, we want to do things that make them happy, make them want to be with us, spend time with us. God's law is how we relate to him. I was talking about some thoughts I had for this message a couple weeks ago, and I was mentioning it when I was talking to the other elders, and Wade said, well, you know, God doesn't say thou shalt not to hold you down, but to build you up, to make your life easier. And, and I thought that was a wonderful description. God doesn't say give us these rules so that we're hold down and restrained, but to help us because he loves us. Now, you may look at this language here in the passage we're looking at or these verses from Psalm 119. You may say, Pastor, I, I don't feel that all the time. I, I don't feel that I love God's word in that way. Is there something wrong with me? Well, I'd say at the very least, need to examine your priorities because if you don't feel that, then I imagine God feels distant to you. And if God feels distant, we need more, not less of his word. Take the time to read and know him more. I promise you, it is worth the effort. So when God feels distant, we can look around us. We can look in his word. But after we do that, there's one thing left. There's a response that we need. And that's we need to look in our hearts. Look in your heart. If we've looked around and we've looked in the word, we now look in our hearts. And there's two kind of action steps that even David puts here of things, ways we do that in our life. How do we look in our hearts? Well, the first one he says is to check yourself. Check yourself. This is verse 12 and 13. He writes, who can discern his errors? He's saying, I can't, I can't discern my errors. So God, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, innocent of great transgression. David is calling us to focus on our moral failures, to search out where we fall short of God's standard, to check where we do not measure up to who God says he is. Not so we can then say, well, I fall short here, so I need a self-improvement plan to do better. Not not to do that, but so we rely on God's forgiveness, on his deliverance. He says, who can discern his errors, help me to live better? No, who can discern his errors? God, I need you to declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Because God's word, his law, examines not only our actions, but the thoughts behind Our actions. The law searches all the hiding places of our souls. The sin, the rebellion against God that lurks in our hearts. As Psalm 90 says, Lord, you have set our iniquities, our sins before you. Our secret sins are in the light of your presence. We cannot hide it from him. And only God is the one who can declare someone innocent. Only he can forgive the sins that we've forgotten about or didn't know that we did. This is how serious our rebellion, our sin against God is. It's so serious because it's an eternal offense to God. We sometimes lower it, but it separates us from him. We need him to search it out and cleanse us from the inside out. And our unintentional sins need this atoning, this cleansing too. We really cannot comprehend the extent of our guilt. David knows this. He knows that he's not perfect before God. He knows his faults, so he asks for God's forgiveness. He's asking God, I need you to declare me innocent. Acquit me. Cleanse me. Probably his most famous place he does that is, is in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, he prays, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. This is our need that we should see. If we're looking at what God has given us, his revelation of himself rightly, if we look around and we see there's someone greater here than me than exist, there, there's something greater, someone, that there's something else here, and I'm not that person. And then we look at his word and realize, oh, this is God. God is the one who has made all this. And we look at what he has said, we realize, I don't follow this. I don't do everything that's here. We should have the desire then to call out for his grace and mercy. And this is the hope that is available for the world, for those who who seek to know the Lord. Because in this moment of our need before God, that's when he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And because Jesus lived and he obeyed these commands that God gave perfectly, he was then able to pay for our way to know him. He died so we didn't have to. He experienced God's wrath so we did not have to. And so now if we turn away from our sin and we put our faith, our trust, if we say, God, I'm relying on you, not what I have done, then we can know him. Friends, this message is being blared to you in so many ways. You see it every time you walk outside. You see there is something else going on here And it's calling to you from his word. You are here, either in this room or watching online, you are hearing the truth that God is the one who made that. God is the one calling to you. And I pray that you will turn and you will come to know him. That's something you can talk to me about. That's something that any believer can share with you. But turn from sin, believe, trust in Jesus Christ. But if we have a relationship with God, well, then we pray the very next verse. David has verse 13. We ask the Lord to keep back us from presumptuous, deliberate, known, evident sins. You get this image of, of David asking God. He says, God, hold me back. I want to run this way, and I need you to restrain me, to hold me back. He's talking about the worst form of sin, the kind that we do deliberately, willfully. And this is instruction that we all follow. We should call out to God to direct us, to lead us away from that kind of sin. Colossians chapter 3 says, put to death, kill what is earthly in you. Things like sexual immorality, any impurity, passion, not meaning things that we're passionate about, you know, not saying if you're passionate about art or shell collecting, not, not, not talking about that. No, 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 our passion, our desires that lead us away from God, our evil desires covetousness wanting what others have because that is idolatry is what paul writes we need god to hold us back from these things pastor charles spurgeon put it this way he said our evil nature is like an ill-tempered horse it is apt to run away and so may the grace of god put the bridle upon it hold it in that it rush not into mischief As a startled horse wants to run, so does our nature. We want to run after what we want. And that's what David's prayer here is. Keep me back. Hold me back. Keep me from going after these wrong desires I have. Psalm 119 also mentions this. It says, keep steady my steps according to your promise. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. And that's exactly what our text said. and It said, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Because here's the truth. Even if we profess a relationship with Jesus Christ, sin, our desires against God, if they're left unchecked, they will dominate our lives. Because then our life will become all about hiding that sin, concealing it from others. Or our life will be about feeding it, giving in to the things we want against God. Our sin wants to rule over us and control us, and it will unless God helps us. We fail when we look away from God, when we don't ask for his help. And sin, especially hidden sin, will destroy us from the inside out. True believers in Christ do not want their lives to be defined by sin. And indeed, if the Holy Spirit is at work in them, they won't be defined by sin. Paul will write also in Romans, he'll say, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. If we understand our sin, how serious it is and how much it pulls us away from God, we will be like David, we'll cry out, God, I need you to hold me back and keep me from it. I need your help in overcoming it. So That's kind of a negative side of it. We're checking ourselves, seeing where sin is in our life, but there's also another action step we can take. We not only can ask God for help in checking sin, controlling it, but we can also commit ourselves. Commit yourself. Now, let me be clear what I'm saying here. I, I did it because I like the, the two C's here, okay? but when I say commit yourself, I mean commit yourself to God, not commit yourself to a mental institution or a hospital or 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 something like that. It looked nice on the outline. I'm not talking about that. No, what I'm talking about is what David says in verse 14. He says, let the words of my mouth, what I say, let the meditation of my heart, what I think about, be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. His desire is for all of his life to be an acceptable, pleasing sacrifice to God. So before he was just looking at his sin, he was like, I don't want to sin against the Lord. I want to stay clean in my life. But now he's saying, I want to live in a way that honors him. Not only not sin, but do what is right. Please him. And this language of being acceptable comes from the Old Testament sacrifices, this law that he's praising. Leviticus twenty-two twenty says, you shall not offer anything that has a blemish for it will not be acceptable for you had to give an animal that did not have any blemish on it to represent their perfect desire to seek god and this sacrificial language again shows up in the new testament paul says i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of god present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and here's that word acceptable to god which is your spiritual worship so when we're checking ourselves we look in our hearts we're asking god to reveal sin and then we're committing to God, praying that he would lead us to live closer to him. This language flows throughout scripture. Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous or wrong way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. A desire for God to work in our hearts and lead us in a way that honors him because of our love and affection for him. We've seen him in creation. We've seen him in his word. We want to live for him. And we're able to do this, and God's able to do it for us because of two things. very verse 14 says, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He is our rock, our strength, the one we can rely on, the one who fights for us. In Psalm 18, David will say, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. And he is our redeemer. He redeems, he buys us out of slavery to sin into a relationship with him. Book of Job says, I know my redeemer lives. At the last he will stand upon the earth. So yes, it's a confusing time in the world. Sometimes we don't know what we should do Sometimes it feels like God's unconcerned or he he doesn't clearly speak about the way we should live or what to think about what's happening in the world. But when God feels distant, we can still know him. We can know him by looking around at the world that he has made and recognizing, wow, God made that. God did this. We can look in his word and we can see who he is. I'm confused as to what God would desire in this situation. Well, let me read this. Oh, this helps me to understand God's heart. And then we can look in our hearts. We can check ourselves to see if there's hidden sin in us. Ask God to bring it out, remove it from us, and we can commit to live for the Lord and honor Him. Now you may say, Well, Pastor John, I've I've done all that. I've looked outside, yeah, God's done that. I read His word, I've I've prayed those things, but God still feels distant from me. I would say, Really? Have you really done that? But even if you feel that way, let's say, keep doing it. This is what David did. He continued to look, continued to find ways to praise God in the world around him. He continued to study and know the law till it got to the point that it, he loved it. He continued to pray that God would check his heart and that he would be committed to his God. Keep doing it. God will be faithful. He will not feel distant for long. He is our rock and our redeemer. This is how we know him. So let's praise him for that.